If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. While you're turning to Matthew chapter 20, we're about to read Jesus, his description of what he's planning on doing, where he's going, what he's doing. And what's amazing is he's shockingly clear about what's about to happen to him. Um, I say shockingly in the sense that when you follow the narrative of Jesus going to Jerusalem and the crucifixion and the most important parts of our Christian faith, all those things are gonna happen in Jerusalem. Um, and the disciples the whole time seem to be sort of lost. Like what's happening? What's going on around us? Why are we here? And what, what, what's going on? And, and, um, and Jesus, it, what's amazing is he told them what was gonna happen. Um, almost as good as clockwork. Jesus explained it. And that's one of the things I wanna show you here um, about his plan to go to Jerusalem and what he's, plan what he's planning to do. But there's a, a verse before we get into our text here um, that I wanna remind you of. It's Hebrews 12, two, where it says that we are looking unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith, who, now notice this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. What, what was one of the motivations that, that uh, made him do such a thing? And we're gonna get into the cross and how, what, a, what an amazing decision that was that Jesus made to go to the cross to save the world from its sinful condition. Um, but it was the joy that was set before him. And it makes me wonder when he was thinking about this, I, I know that he, he had the cup of suffering that he prayed about there in the garden of Gethsemane. They even call it agony there in the garden, which I understand that. But I also sense that, that there was a part of Jesus that knew what he was doing. So there was a joy that was set before him and that's why he endured the cross. And what was the joy in the cross? How could you find joy in the cross? Well, the answer is the joy is you. Uh, he wants to save you from your sins. There was a, uh, I wonder if when Jesus was talking about his going to the cross, like in our text here, if there was a little gleam in his eye as he was explaining to, to his disciples. Um, you know, we all see those old Jesus movies. When I grew up seeing Jesus movies, they always had the scary Jesus. You know what I mean? The skinny, looked like he needed a burger real bad. And he's just walking around all beady eye. Looked like he was smoking some weed, kind of floating around, uh, you know, doing his very scary Jesus stuff. Um, I don't believe that's the Jesus of the Bible. And I've, I've, I've liked how some of the newer, not that I, it's hard for me to watch Jesus movies today because they're, they're always technically wrong. Uh, as a guy who loves the Bible, I always have a hard time watching some of these things. But, but I do like that they're making him at least a little more lighthearted. We know that he was uh, a nice enough guy to where children ran up and wanted to hang out with him. Uh, that tells us a little bit about his demeanor. Uh, that's something that hasn't changed throughout all the millennia. Uh, you know, children, uh, they're afraid of the scary pot smoking Jesus on the TV show. I wouldn't have gone up to him. Um, but I like the Jesus of the Bible where he was anointed with the oil of gladness and he spoke words and people marveled at his gracious words. And I love the demeanor of Jesus when you read him in the Bible. But even when he was talking about what he was gonna do to go to the cross, I wonder if there was a, that, a bit of joy that was behind there. Uh, it's something for us to think about as we read our text uh, today in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Let's take a look. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. It says, and Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. 
and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Isn't it amazing? In two verses, Jesus just packs out the whole story. Here's what's gonna happen. We're going to Jerusalem. Like, is this pretty clear? It's an amazing, clear description of what Jesus was going. He knew exactly what was gonna happen. And by the way, talking of Jesus movies, one of the things I also reject is when Jesus is apprehended by the Romans and Caiaphas and stuff in the Garden of Gethsemane, they always kind of show Jesus kicking and screaming, you know, like, like they're dragging him off. And he's like, you know, against his will kind of thing. Not the right picture. Jesus went willingly. If Jesus wanted to resist those guys that were pulling him, uh, what would that have looked like if he really wanted to resist them? I always like the pink mist model where he just lets go of all the atoms of their brains and (laughs) little splatters like bugs on a windshield. Like he could have done that with just a thought, just boom. Uh, But he didn't do that. He went willingly to, to, to be apprehended, to go to the cross with joy that was set before him. That's an amazing thing. But, um, but Jesus spells out the whole thing here in two verses. And I think it's good for us as we, um, as we look at this, we get the advantage over the disciples of knowing what actually happened and why and, and all the details. But it's almost like when Jesus talked about this with his disciples, like in this case, they're on their way up to Jerusalem. He pulls off aside the, the trail and they, they sit down somewhere probably. And he says, hey, I've got, I'm gonna tell you what we're doing here. Here's the game plan. And it's quite Detailed. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, what was going on. Whenever Jesus talks to the disciples about this, have you ever noticed the disciples, they awkwardly sort of want to change the subject? Have you noticed that? It's like, yeah, whatever, uh, let's move on. Or, or you know, um, by the way, this is the third time in, the, in Matthew's narrative where Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise up from the grave. Um, and, and what happens in those situations? In fact, keep your finger here and go back a few pages. Matthew chapter 16, where, do you remember we read this a few weeks ago when it says in Matthew 16, 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. One of the things we gotta remember, every time Jesus talked about his death that was coming, he also talked about that he'd raise up from the dead. And it's a little hard, now that we have hindsight, to to see how the disciples missed this. Because if you remember what happened, Jesus went, all this stuff happened, he died on the cross. But the disciples, the last thing in their mind was that he was gonna raise up from the grave. It's like they've missed it. They're just kind of like, oh, what a bummer. Our leader is dead now, and oh well, and let's go fishing, and it's all over, and bummer. They, they forgot this. And, and part of it is, I think it was their demeanor and how they were listening to Jesus, because every time Jesus would say this, it's, like, um, it's almost like the disciples wanted to change the subject or something. In this case, in Matthew 16, then Peter, feeling his Cheerios from the earlier part of the chapter, then Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him. Who thinks they can rebuke Jesus? Peter, I rebuke you in the name of, well, you. Like, can you imagine rebuking Jesus? That's what what Peter's doing here. I rebuke you. He says, saying, be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) What an interesting discussion that was. Now, by the way, Jesus, as we learned previously, he wasn't calling Peter Satan. But it was Satan who was tempting Jesus not to go to the cross because if that would have happened, we'd all have been doomed. 
But interesting, the disciples, here's Peter. He's saying, no, not so. That's the last thing that'll ever happen to you. We will not let this happen. And then Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. The point is the disciples, or, or even in this case, we'll see on Wednesday night here in Matthew 20, um, we see one of the disciples, a couple of the disciples' mothers come in and sort of interrupt, say, yeah, 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 you're gonna die or whatever. But hey, can my son, son sit with you on your right hand and left hand? Like, like they, she, she changes the subject. We'll talk about that on Wednesday. But the disciples still, you can tell, they just don't grasp what he's saying, even though he's being exceedingly clear. Um, uh, and, and whenever the disciples hear Jesus talk about his death, they're always kind of trying to change the subject. Um, have you ever met people that have that de- positive demeanor and they say, you know, you're telling them reality. Hey, if you don't fix this, you're gonna have some real problems. Oh, don't say that, don't say that. Be positive. Now, some of you are, you know, the positive people. Good for you, that's great. Some of us are kind of realists. Um, if you don't fix your plumbing, you're gonna have problems in your house. Uh, oh, don't say that. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's gonna have, and, and there's some people that are kind of wired differently, and I, I like optimistic people, but at the same time, sometimes we're so optimistic, we kind of miss the point. I might've learned that when I was in high school. I was on the basketball team of the losingest team in America. Three years, we had not won a basketball game for three years. We made the front page of USA Today. Um, we got a letter from Coach Ramsey of the Blazers who at that time, he was the head coach saying, you guys can do it. And we're like, no, we can't. Uh, um, but it was so awkward. We'd go in the locker room before a game and the coach said, now you guys get out there, you can win this game. And we're like, no, no, we can't. Now what's even more embarrassing about being on the most losing team in America is I, by my junior year, I was cut from the most losing team of America. Uh, that's my basketball skills. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, this is kind of the demeanor that, oh, don't say that. It, don't, don't be so negative. You know, think positive. It's, it's almost like the disciples just didn't want to hear anything that was negative, even if it was true. And we have to be careful about that. When the Bible talks about stuff that's negative or scary, we should take note. Um, and and um, two prophecy updates ago, I talked about the wrath of God. There's something people, oh, don't talk about that. Don't talk about God's wrath and his righteousness and his holiness. Talk about salvation and grace. But if you don't talk about God's wrath, God's grace and righteousness doesn't really make as much sense either. You gotta give the whole story and be realist when it comes to the Bible. So Jesus, he, he says this to his disciples uh, here in John, or pardon me, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. But I, I like how this is very detailed. Let's kind of dive into some of the details. First of all, notice with me something that's worth noting is Jesus says, uh, behold, we go up to Jerusalem in verse 18. Verse 17, Jesus going up to Jerusalem took 12 disciples. This is a a little freebie for you. If you're ever in Israel, that's what you say. We're going up to Jerusalem, even if you're north of Jerusalem. See here in America, if you're saying we're going down to Los Angeles, that means we're going down south or going up to Seattle. Um, going down to Los Angeles means geographically they're south of us. Also, maybe philosophically down as well, if you ask me, but that's just a whole nother thing. Um, but this idea of uh, going up to Jerusalem is what you say no matter where you are, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is Jerusalem sits high atop the mountains of, of, or the mountains of Israel. Um, Jerusalem sits at the altitude of 2,474 feet. Um, which is interesting because usually when we, as our tour group goes, we, we start down at the Dead Sea, which is 1,410 feet below sea, sea level. 
um, which is really interesting. And then we drive 3,000 feet up a hill. I've been in um, Jericho one afternoon when it was like 85 degrees. And uh, then we went up to Jerusalem and the next morning there were four inches of snow on the ground. Like um, it's because you're up in these mountains of uh, where Jerusalem is. And so geographically, altitudinally, it's up from everywhere uh, virtually in Israel. So they say up for that reason, but also it's up because of the preeminence of all cities. Jerusalem is above, if you would, all other cities. cities. And, um, and this is something that a Bible student, you should sort of be aware of because the world argues about Jerusalem to, to this very day. Jerusalem's on the news every day because the world disagrees about who really Jerusalem belongs to and who is Jerusalem most special to. Um, and there's these really funny arguments that have uh, gained steam that are interesting. There are three major groups that like to claim Jerusalem as their city. Um, the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. Um, now, the Jews, it makes a lot of sense why the Jews call Jerusalem their city. Because, you know, back uh, 3,000 years ago, David, with um, the help of Joab, shimmying up the shaft, Warren shaft, and taking the city from the Jebusites, 3,000 years ago, it became the city of David. That's what they called it, the city of David, Jerusalem. And it was Jerusalem there for uh, centuries where it was the Jews' city. Um, and, and so um, you can see why. Uh, there, David took the city, David's son Solomon built the temple to the Lord on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so the Jews, their most holy site in all of Judaism is Jerusalem because it was where the temple was built on the Temple Mount. So you can kind of see why the Jews for, and, and for you know, 3,000 years. Now you say, Brett, the Jews didn't always have it for 3,000 years. Yeah, there was times where, you know, for example, 586, the Babylonians crushed Jerusalem and left it in a heap of ruin. But the Jews came back and rebuilt it. Uh, yeah, but then the Romans crushed it in AD 70 and the Jews were you know, scattered there after the Roman Empire. Yep, uh, but, but if you'll note, the Jews still kept a little toehold in Jerusalem and then um, since AD 70, there's been you know, a lot of groups that have rolled through there, everybody from the British, the Mamelukes to the uh, Ottoman Empire. And during the Ottoman Empire, that's when the Muslims took over Jerusalem. Uh, when the Muslims took it over, uh, you know, uh, after 600 AD, um, the, the Muslims sort of, uh, you know, uh, Islam sort of stretched out as far as Jerusalem. In fact, um, it was kind of the farthest reaching uh, of all of uh, Islam during the time of Muhammad and all this stuff. But it's interesting because in Islamic theology, once you obtain a city or a location in Islam, you're supposed to keep that at all costs. Uh, and if somebody takes it back from you, you're supposed to take it back. I call it preschool theology. Remember when you're in preschool, if you were playing with a little toy and then you set the toy down, some other kid comes up to grab that toy and you're like, nope, mine. Uh, and then you set it down and then another kid takes it and because he took it for a second, now it's mine. Uh, that's, that's what the, the uh, you know, Muslims say. We were there during the Ottoman Empire, so Jerusalem is my ours. And the Jews are saying, well, it was kind of ours long before you, it was yours. And, uh, and, and God says it is ours, um, uh, kind of interestingly enough. And, and the Muslims say, well, no, it's not, it's, it's ours. So there's a huge conflict and that's what we're seeing on the news right now. Uh, there's been more violence in Jerusalem in the last couple of weeks than there has been in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, which is interesting. We talked about that on Friday night at the Prophecy Update. 
But you say, okay, Brett, so the Jews say it's theirs. Um, by the way, um, Jerusalem is not the most holy site of Islam. They call it the third most holy site. You got Mecca as number one, Medina number two, and then Jerusalem, the Muslims say, is our third most holy site. When did it become that? 600 AD? No. Um, actually, not even hardly 100 years ago. It was, do you, you older folks here, do you remember Yasser Arafat? It was Yasser Arafat's great uncle, the Grand Mufti. Uh, the Grand what? Yeah, the Grand Mufti. Haj Amin El Husseini. He was the one who ultimately declared that Jerusalem is the third most holy city in all of uh, Islam. And, and he named it that uh, back in the day when he was around, um, which is less than 100 years ago. Like it's a new thing that the, as Muslims call it their third most holy site. Um, and it was a very thin thing that happened there that they, they claim, and this is again, not even agreed upon uh, within Islam, uh, that Muhammad apparently got on the magical horse ride at the night journey and ascended up there at where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is there on the Temple Mount. Now they don't call it the Temple Mount. The, the Muslims claim the Jews never had a temple on the Temple Mount. That's their, that's their claim right now, which is hilarious because there's all kinds of archeological evidence and historical evidence of that. But um, it's a thin argument of why the, the Muslims claim Jerusalem is theirs. But the reason I go into all this stuff about Jerusalem, Jerusalem is also um, what we as Christians esteem as a holy city. And it's holy for several reasons, but as Christians, we, we see it as holy because of what happened there primarily, but also what's going to happen there. Um, and it's interesting to me, how many times is the city of Jerusalem mentioned by name in the Quran? Anybody? Zero times. In my King James Bible right here, uh, Jerusalem is mentioned 814 times. That's kind of interesting. So the Christians and the Jews, our Bible, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, the whole Bible of the Christians, we all, we all say, man, Jerusalem's the epicenter of all things, Christian and Jewish. Um, but for the Christian, Jesus tells us some stuff here in our text. Um, Jerusalem is where Jesus died on the cross. Jerusalem is where he was buried. Jerusalem where, is where he rose from the grave. Jerusalem is where Jesus there at the Mount of Olives ascended into heaven. And Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, is where Jesus is gonna come in his second coming and put his foot down in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where Christ is gonna, in his second coming, rule and reign for all eternity. Jerusalem's kind of a big deal. So Brett, is it Christian? Is it Muslim? Is it Jewish? You wanna know who really owns Jerusalem? God. The Bible says, God says, I put my name on Jerusalem. He writes his name and says, mine. Um, he didn't do that with Dundee or Newburgh. He didn't say, Newburgh is mine, nope. Um, sadly, we're seeing Newburgh be lost right before us. It's so sad what's happening in Newburgh if you're following the public school situation. We have some Christian people over there that are fighting to try to keep uh, Newburgh from going totally berserk. Uh, pray for Newburgh and pray for the people that are trying to make that happen. Uh, Newburgh is not the Lord's right now, I'm just gonna say it. Nor is Portlandia. But we, we, we uh, shockingly, the Lord says to all of humanity, guess what? Jerusalem is the city uh, that I claim is mine. So that's kind of an important thing. And that's why Jesus going with the disciples, going up to Jerusalem, this is a shifting of gears in the narrative of our Matthew study. So far we've been in Galilee and all the peaceful, nice areas of the outer regions. But now it's heating up as we go through the narrative of Matthew because Jerusalem is the epicenter of where everything uh, that really is super important uh, is, gonna, is, is gonna happen. Um, and so what, what does Jesus say? When we break this down, he, he, he spells it out. The first thing he says is he would be betrayed 
There in verse 18, Jesus says, we're gonna go up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed. Jesus knew that was gonna happen. Judas Iscariot with a betrayal kiss. And not just, I mean, Judas was the main betrayal, but really Jesus would be betrayed by all of his disciples. They'd all run and leave him. And Peter would deny him three times. Uh, Jesus would be betrayed there. The second thing is Jesus knew that he would be um, taken by the chief priests and the scribes. Um, the chief priest we know uh, is Caiaphas there in Jerusalem at the time. And Caiaphas and the priests and the scribes would take and apprehend Jesus there in the garden of Gethsemane. And then, and Jesus even knows what's gonna happen after that, that he, the scribes and the Pharisees, the priests, they would condemn him, pardon me, uh, they'd condemn him to death. Um, and it says there in verse 19, and will deliver him to the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles here? Well, that's none other than the Romans who were in control of Jerusalem at the time. So the Romans are gonna, the Jews will take him. And then Jesus said, then they'll turn me over to the Gentiles, which would be the Romans, where then the list goes on and on. Jesus said, they'll mock. And that's exactly what the Romans did. They placed a purple robe on Jesus um, and mocked him and said, hail king of the Jews. Purple was the color of royalty in those days. So they put a purple robe and said, hail king of Jews and smashed a crown of thorns on his head. This is stuff Jesus already knew. They're gonna mock. Um, remember they'd blindfold him and they'd punch him in the face. If you're really the son of God, tell us who hit you. This is what's gonna happen. What a mockery. And it's shocking. When you think about it, Jesus, when he was punched by those guys blindfolded, do you think he knew who hit him? I suggest he knew how many hairs that person had on his head. Um, Jesus, knowing all this stuff, he goes, knowing that he'd be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, and then the next word here is scourged. The word scourge is a, a, a horrifying word. You might say, you mean whipped? Yeah, but the, the whipping of the Romans, there's no worse time in history to be whipped than in the Roman Empire. Because the Romans were trained, there were certain guys literally trained to handle the whip of the flagellum. Some people might call it like a cat of nine tails, but it was a, it was a whip that was very peculiar that the Romans had uh, sort of honed in on the art of suffering. By taking a, a, a whip with a handle that was like maybe 12 or 15 inches, and then out of that handle would come these leather straps. At the end of the leather straps, there'd be these little weighted balls, lead, um, that were really small, like little mini fishing weights. And they just kind of added some weight to the end of the leather straps. But then worse still, in the leather straps were sort of embedded these little tiny pieces of what we would call glass, but it was probably more like these little pieces of obsidian type rock. There were sharp little uh, razor sharp, little miniature blades inside the leather straps. It was a horrible, torturous instrument of pain. And Jesus knew that he was going to be whipped with this flagellum. Um, I, I could read accounts of history of people being whipped in the descriptions, but I couldn't read them here. They're too horrific to read in a kind of a public setting. Um, but Jesus knew he was going to be uh, you know, whipped, scourged by the Romans. And then he says, after mocked and scourged, and then he says, they will crucify him. Jesus knew he was headed for the crucifixion, the cross. Now the word cruci crucifixion, it really just means fixed to the, to the cross. Um, the Romans practiced crucifixion for nearly a millennium. The Romans had been hanging people on crosses for a long, long time. It was public, it was painful, 
And it was a slow form of execution. Back in the Bastille days, you know, when they brought out the guillotine, um, we all kind of are horrified by the guillotine and the idea, but man, totally way more fast and humane, if you would, if you could call that humane, um, than, than the cross of crucifixion. The, the guillotine was designed to make it really quick, um, uh, but still a little scary. Um, I read a, a science work on uh, beheadings of the guillotine and um, some scientists believe your eyes and your brain still functions for 15 seconds after a person's beheaded. Um, it's not a way to get ahead, but sorry, you guys just looked a little scared and I, I had to lighten the moment a little bit. But, um, but guillotine was instant. The purpose of a crucifixion was to draw it out for a long time. In fact, there's historical writings of people hanging on crosses for weeks. Um, that, that sounds horrible to me. Um, and it was meant to humiliate and to slowly punish and it was meant to deter future crimes uh, uh, by scaring people away from all that. Just the, the last thing you'd ever wanna be is crucified. Uh, crucifixion seems to have, have uh, originated in Persia. It was the Persians who seemed to have invented it, but the Romans created it as a practice. Um, and you know, you can study crucifixion, it's horrible. Um, there's different types of crosses. The crux emissa in Latin is talking more about the Christian shape of a cross, like the ones you wear on a necklace. Um, or the crux commissa, which is more of a, t a capital T. There's a lot of examples in history of the capital T type cross. Um, uh, even an X-shaped cross. There's all kinds of crosses uh, that the Romans used. Um, but reading some of the descriptions, again, I can't read all of them, but like Seneca, the Roman philosopher, this is a, a bust of Seneca from Rome, but he said this in 40 AD, so this was only 10 years after Jesus died on the cross or so. Um, he said this, I see crosses there, not just one kind, but made in different ways. Some have their victims with their head down to the ground. Others impale their private parts. Others stretch out their arms. Like the Romans made this an art form is what you know, basically Seneca was saying of how to make a person feel pain. Horrible, horrible time. Um, Cicero, the Roman uh, orator, uh, he noted that all of all the punishments in the world, crucifixion is the most cruel and the most terrifying. Josephus, who was a first century historian, Jewish historian, he called it the most, most wretched death of all deaths. Uh, and this guy, Josephus, witnessed all kinds of horrible, um, you know, torture and, and stuff from the Roman Empire. So crucifixion was a deterrent for future crimes and humiliation of the dying person. Um, the, the person would spend their last days of his life uh, naked in full view of all the passerbys until he died of, of several different causes. The number one cause of death on crucifixion was asphyxiation. That is um, because of the hanging on a cross and the muscles of the victim spasming, it would start to constrict uh, their muscles would freak out and, and sort of uh, uh, convulse in a way that would actually restrict breathing. And for a person to breathe as they were hanging on a cross, they would have to uh, press upward with their body on the nail that they were nailed or the ropes that they were roped to, but to this cross. And they would have to try to stretch and gasp for air. And they could sort of sustain life barely by barely being able to breathe. It was a horrible, horrible way to die. Um, that's why the Romans, we read accounts, not only in the Bible, but also extra biblical literature where the Romans would break the legs of a victim if they wanted to shorten the death 
and finish the job. They'd break the legs because the person couldn't stretch out and breathe. They would literally suffocate. And that was the number one cause of death if you were like a coroner looking at this uh, asphyxiation. The second cause was dehydration. A person would hang on the cross in the sun, bleeding, dying. But as it turns out, dehydration was the second most cause of death. And then thirdly, infection. Um, and there were other causes listed after that. But the, the reason I go into this is Jesus was headed to Jerusalem with his disciples saying, guys, here's what we're doing. We're gonna go to Jerusalem. The Jews are gonna hate me and they're gonna apprehend me. Then they're gonna turn me over to the Romans. They're gonna mock me, scourge me, crucify me. Um, and when we think about that, this is what these guys all knew when Jesus said all these words, crucify and scourge. This is what the disciples, and, and, and I start to realize the disciples are like, uh, yeah, whatever, let's not talk about that. Let's, let's just talk about taking over the Roman Empire, bringing in your kingdom. Let's do the good stuff here. And it seems like they sort of blocked it out, deer in the headlights kind of thing. Um, but then the last thing is the most important part, if you ask me. Because if you just leave it there, which a lot of people do, and a lot of Christians, they just leave it at the crucifixion and go, wow, Jesus died on the cross. But Jesus never ends with that in these warnings and his uh, foreshadows of what's happening. He, even in our text here, he says, they'll crucify him and the third day he shall rise again. This is an amazing thing that Jesus was predicting this. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, do you understand if he just died and was buried and that was the end of the story, Christianity would be just as fake as all the other religions. Do you understand that? The resurrection is essential to the Christian doctrine. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, um, and if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. The word vain there means empty, worthless, a waste of time. Um, if Jesus didn't raise up from the grave, no other religious leader, prophet, or guru substantiated their claim of being having any spiritual authority on anything except for Jesus, Jesus said, if you destroy this body in three days, I will raise it up. He told his disciples right here, I'm gonna be crucified and on the third day, I'll rise, rise up from the grave. Buddha did nothing to prove his claims of spiritual enlightenment. He died only have, having left behind a destroyed family. If you know the story, it's heartbreaking. Muhammad died never to come back, even though he claimed he would come back. He didn't. Houdini claimed he would come back from the dead and even named a day and an hour and people waited, but he's still dead as it turns out. Um, so the resurrection um, of Jesus is super important to this whole discussion. Um, by the way, I hope as Christians we're like Jesus in that when we talk about his death, don't forget to bring up his resurrection in the same breath. Jesus always did that. I'm gonna die on the cross, but I'm gonna raise up on the third day. I think we should be good at that as Christians. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, but he also rose from the grave. That should be a major part of our narrative. The resurrection means life and life abundantly that the Lord wants for us to have. And we're gonna see scriptures that really reinforce that. Um, so even now, um, the disciples uh, were focused on Jesus going in and maybe conquering the Roman empire or saying, hey, stop talking about this death stuff. Um, be positive, Jesus. That's kind of what Peter said. Oh, I'm not so. Don't let this happen. Um, you might say, well, Brett, what's the big deal about the resurrection? Well, first of all, do you understand one of the things the atheists or the agnostics, a lot of the cardigan sweater pipe puffing professors are always trying to say is, well, the resurrection never really happened. 
There's even seminaries, I call them cemetery. It's where young uh, pastors go to die. Uh, sadly, a lot of the cemeteries. Um, they, uh, these seminaries, there's seminarian professors that deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. I heard a, a seminarian uh, talk about how Jesus, the resurrection wasn't really part of the early church. Um, it was only invented at like the 11th century. Somebody said Jesus rose from the grave. And so they made it part of the narrative later. Uh, I would just say, that's dumb. Read your Bible. I'll show you that in a second. But, um, but they also deny the resurrection completely. A lot of these people, especially Discover Channel, History Channel, all these religious theologians, cardigan, sweater, pipe puffing guys saying, well, the resurrection is just a figment of the imagination. No, if the resurrection is not true, then our preaching is in vain. So there's no wonder there's, there's a lot of people that are trying to deny the resurrection. And here's what you'll hear in colleges and universities. Well, Jesus, if they admit that Jesus was there, which is so provable, it's not even funny. But um, if they admit that Jesus is there, they say, well, he didn't really die. He, he merely swooned. You'll hear the swooning theory, which always cracks me up. If you believe the, the swooning theory, I'm impressed with how much crazy level faith you have to believe such a stupid idea. Swooning. So what you're saying is Jesus, um, after being hung on a cross, bleeding and whipped with a flagellum and nailed with nails, and, uh, and, and then, and then the, the Romans who were experts on death misdiagnosed that he was dead because they went, the, the historical account is very clear. The Romans looked at Jesus and now oh, this guy's already dead, but to make sure he was dead, what'd they do? They took a spear and thrust it in his side and out came from his side, um, water and blood, which if you know, as a forensic medicine you know, specialist, as I've read some works on this, uh, you are completely dead. If you have a, a bursting of blood and water coming out your side from a spear wound, you're toast. But you have the faith to believe that he, Jesus in that condition seemed dead. They wrapped him up in grave clothes, put him in a tomb and closed a two-ton stone over the tomb. And just because of the moist air and the cool of a Sunday morning, Jesus just kind of woke up, felt so much better. And, and then he had the strength to roll away a two-ton stone, fight through a whole Roman army guard post, and then make his way to the disciples saying, I'm back, I feel great. You believe that? You have more faith than I have. That's crazy level faith. I simply believe Jesus did exactly what he said he was gonna do, that he said, if you destroy this body in three days, I will raise it up from the grave. You see, Jesus doing that, doing what he said he was gonna do is a key to Christianity. And, and anybody who denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, the Bible says that is not really a person of faith at all or even someone who's saved. You see, the, the resurrection is such a key and I like to focus on this. In fact, because of the resurrection, we as Christians enjoy so many good things. But I'd like to just share with you three and then we'll be done to pack it up. Uh, the first thing I'd like to share with you is first of all, the resurrection gives us substantiation for our faith. Um, and let me go over some of those, uh, some of my favorites. There's, there's tons of these. I'm just gonna give you a few. Um, number one, Jesus predicted his resurrection. Like our text says in Matthew 20, verse 19, Jesus said, they'll crucify me, but I will raise again on the third day. That's very specific. Jesus predicted that of himself. In fact, in John chapter two, verses 18 through 22, it says, you know, that Jesus answered the Jews and, they, and the, Jews, the Jews said, hey, Jesus, show us a sign 
um, you know, uh, that you do these things. And Jesus said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And they said, you know, 42 years, pardon me, 46 years, it took us to build the temple. And you say you're gonna raise it up in two days or three days? And Jesus said, um, or, you know, the, the scriptures say that Jesus spoke of the temple of his body. And then it says, when therefore the disciples remembered that he said this unto them, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. The disciples remembered what Jesus said only after he died and after he rose from the grave. They was like, oh yeah, he said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And he very literally said it to the disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verse 19. I'll be crucified and on the third day, I will raise up from the grave. Jesus predicted his own death burial and resurrected, resurrection. And he told the enemies of Jesus, he said, this will be the one sign that I'll show you. So that's, that's the first substantiation of our faith is that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. The, the, the second one that is a little more uh, tricky is the Old Testament prophesies about Jesus' resurrection. Now, some of you, even if you're a good Bible student, you might say, where in the Old Testament um, is Jesus' resurrection prophesied? Well, it's a little tricky, it's in the Psalms. In fact, it's Psalm 1610, where the, the Psalmist David writes this. He says, for thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. You say, Brett, that doesn't, how do you know that's talking about Jesus and his resurrection? Well, there's a really good commentary on the Bible. It's the best commentary on the Bible. And do you guys know what it's called? The Bible. The, Bible. the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And as it turns out, there's commentary on Psalm 16 verse 10. Um, if you're wanting to, you can jot it down or turn there quickly if you, if you have a speedy uh, Bible turning. But Acts chapter two, let's flip over there because this is where Luke, Dr. Luke, he writes a commentary on uh, Psalm 1610. It's Acts chapter two, verse 25. And there it says uh, in Acts two twenty-five, it says, for David speaketh concerning him, um, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because, verse 27, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now you'll notice if you have a margin reference Bible, you'll see the reference to Psalm 16, verse 10, of verse, that's a, a quoting of that Psalm that I just told you about. Um, you say, well, big deal, whatever. Um, but but it, that's the quoting. And then verse 27, thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy, uh, thy countenance. Now, some people say to Luke, who's writing this, but this is talking about David. It's, how do you know it's talking about Jesus? This is talking about David. Well, notice he, he he predicts that in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. In other words, they had the sepulcher of David there in those times. Um, and these guys are, are uh, saying, how could that be David then? Well, he, the point of Luke is writing an Acts here is saying that prophecy wasn't about David. He then tells us who it was about, verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. Does anybody remember, you Bible students, what is the oath called that was given to David that we're about to read about, anybody? The Davidic covenant. There's covenants in the Bible you should know about. 
Um, and there's the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant, that's a big one. But he's talking about the Davidic covenant, which is a fancy promise that God gave to David saying, of your ancestry, your lineage, will come the Messiah, who will be an everlasting king over all of Israel. That's why Jesus was called the son of David. He was a uh, descendant of David, the king of Jerusalem, uh, which is a whole other story. But um, this is what he's referring to, the, the Davidic covenant. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, that's the Messiah, to sit on his throne. And verse 31, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Um, do you see what's going on here? This is the book of Acts explaining what Psalm 1610 is about. It's a, it's a prophecy that Jesus would not be left in hell. You say, well, did Jesus go to hell? Sort of. What do you mean, sort of? If you remember, we've done a whole study on this in previous times. You can look this up if you want. But the word for hell here in the Greek is Hades, which is a whole nother thing. Where Jesus, what did he do? Before he ascended, what did he do? He descended in the lower parts of the earth, which is also called Hades, Abraham's bosom, the, right, the paradise side and the Hades side. It's a whole nother teaching we don't have time to go into today. But he was there, and then what did he do? He led captivity captive, which means he set free the people in Abraham's bosom and brought them to heaven. If you don't know what I'm talking about here, that's okay. Uh, but uh, it is an interesting study. We've done that. You can look it up if you want. But um, you say, okay, Brett, how, how is this important? Well, what's important is even David uh, gets a prophecy there in Psalm uh, 1610 where the, the resurrection of Jesus is foretold. Um, not only Acts 2, the scripture we just showed, but you can jot this down in your notes, Acts 13, 33 through 37. Uh, the, Luke goes into this all over again. Uh, it's a big deal, the idea of the resurrection being foretold in the Old Testament. That's a pretty cool thing. Even the Old Testament, hundreds of years before it happened, was, it predicted that the Christ, the descendant of David, would resurrect from the grave. The third substantiation of our faith is just simply, to bring it more on a simple level, an empty tomb. If you're a Roman, are you uh, wanting to make sure to squash this new religion of Christianity? Well, of course, that was their big, they, they didn't want the king of the Jews ascending into power. That's nothing but work, work, work for the Roman Empire to squash another uprising. Um, the Jews also were very interested in squishing out Christianity. They said, we will not have this man rule over us. Crucify him, they said about Jesus. Um, and all that the Jews or the Romans would have had to do is present a dead body and say, see, he is still dead. You Christians claim that he rose from the grave. Um, but they couldn't, they couldn't produce a, 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 an empty, a, a dead body. Uh, read John 20, verses three through nine, where we kind of see that. Um, but all that to say, you know, some people, some of your cardigan sweater pipe puffing professors will say, well, the disciples stole the body. Again, it takes more faith to believe that. I'll tell you why. If the disciples stole the body, they would have to fight a Roman guard, which would have not been a good thing for the disciples. These guys were fishermen. Um, and fighting a whole Roman guard, no. But even if they did, what did they do? They snuck a body and played a joke on humanity and said, there's a new religion, Jesus rose from the grave. But don't you think one of those guys, um, when they were being tortured later, because everybody was tortured 
Most of them died a horrible death because they would not deny that Jesus rose from the grave. Um, they would say, say Caesar is Lord. And they say, no, Jesus is Lord. Deny Jesus that he rose from the grave. And these disciples went down saying, we will not do that. Don't you think James, as they were getting ready to saw his body in half lengthwise, you just kind of go, okay, time out, time out. It was just a joke, man. We were just playing a joke. Um, don't you think one of them would have cracked? But not only the 12 or the you know, 11 after Judas was you know, out of the picture, but even the greater group of disciples. Um, in fact, that brings us to the next uh, one on our substantiation of our faith. How many people saw a resurrected Jesus? Hundreds and hundreds. In fact, you know, um, what is it? 1 Corinthians 15, three through eight talks about how 500 people saw him at one time in his resurrected form. Um, you know, if you're in a court of law and you have one eyewitness account, you've got a pretty strong case. But if you have two eyewitnesses saying the same thing, that's even a stronger case. But what if you have 500? Uh, that's pretty much an open and shut case. Uh, and that's what it is with Christianity. That's why the world was changed. People, it takes more faith to me to believe that some guy who was nobody really from, from as a carpenter family in Nazareth, how did he change the whole world? Why was the whole world's dating system changed and centered on one guy, Jesus? Um, it's because he did what he said he was gonna do. If you destroy this body, I will raise it up. And he did. And so hundreds of people saw it. And that's why Christianity spread like wildfire because many people saw it with their own eyes and believed that Jesus was the resurrected savior. Number, or letter E, I guess, on our list here, the lives of the disciples were revolutionized. Um, we, we see these bumbling disciples who even fled and denied Jesus when Jesus was arrested. But later, those same apostles were changed forever. They were fearless um, and they feared no one in their proclamation of Jesus, the resurrected savior. In fact, they would stay, stand before the very same religious leaders in Sanhedrin saying, Jesus, whom you crucified, raised up from the grave. Like these guys turned into these bold, unwavering, uh, disciples that said Jesus rose up from the grave. Um, and, you know, one of the things, that, like I said, re the resurrection was not invented in the 12th century or the 11th century. It was the centerpiece of all Christianity. And again, I, I say, just read your Bible. Like, for example, Acts chapter 4, verse 33. If you don't read this, you miss it. Um, With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So those goofball professors that say, well, the resurrection was an invention hundreds of years after Jesus lived, they just made that up to sort of make their Christianity seem more legit. Uh, that is incorrect. The, the Bible um, that is irrefutably uh, written long before the 11th century or whatever, um, it was all about the resurrection and that's why the church grew like wildfire, Acts 4.33. Um, so the testimony, um, or, or I should say, uh, the, the lives of the disciples were changed. There's one more I'd like to add to my list. There's so many more we could talk about, the substantiation of our faith because of the resurrection. But the, the last one I wanna give is the testimony of people today. If you're an atheist or an agnostic, uh, I get it. And I, I understand why people are skeptical and stuff like that. But at the same time, if you take an honest look at everything I'm talking about here, it is a little bit shocking and there is massive evidence that all of this took place. Again, people say, well, what makes Christianity different than all the other religions? Why do you think your faith is true? And the answer is a resurrected Jesus. Um, 
But there is something that I don't think you should dismiss, and I can see why people might dismiss this when I first mention this, but it's something to think about, and that is the testimony of people today. Let's try an experiment here. Um, how many of you, even if not having any archeological proof or evidence, you still believe that Jesus is alive because your life has been changed? Raise your hand if that's you. Like if you look around here, look at that. Yeah, like there's, there's most of us. You know, there's like, you know, 1700 people in this room right now. And you know what? Almost everybody raises their hand. And is that because, well, they're, they're all brainwashed. They're all weirdos and creepy and weird, you know. They're, they're, well, maybe that's true, but. Do you remember in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I was always shocked, and, and it's hard because you can't use this as a rule of life, that going with the majority rule thing. That's not always right, I'll admit. But I do have to say, remember when they would do the uh, lifelines? You know, the person's in trouble, they don't know the answer, so they'd call a friend or do different things. But the one that always intrigued me was ask the uh, audience. Um, and the audience could send in their vote of which, what was the right answer. Um, and almost every single time, like almost without exception, if you watch that, the audience knew the answer. Even if it was divided, like even if there was percentages, even if it got down to a lower percent, whichever percentage was the highest, they were usually the right one on the answer. And I think that's kind of interesting as a lifeline. But the reason I bring that up is it's not just this room full of people that are all raising their hands saying, even if I had no archeological evidence, which we do, but even if I didn't, I would still believe in Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, because my life has been changed and transformed. If, if, if there's a, a, a 1,700 people in this room saying that yes today, then, and, and it's not just this room, it's the billions of Christians who have lived from the first century all the way to the present day. And for, for an atheist or agnostic, just to ignore that and say, oh, they're just all just deluded and they're all mistaken. I think that's a little short-sighted. And by the way, some of the smartest people that have ever lived on the earth were believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope you understand, that's an area I wouldn't wanna really gamble with the testimony of people today who say Jesus is alive. So number one, substantiation of our faith. I'm running out of time. Now you can see why I went too long last service. I'm gonna try to speed this up. Number two, uh, reason we're happy about the resurrection is what Jesus is doing as a resurrected Lord, what is he doing? Well, he ever lives to make intercession for his saints, for, for sinners like us. Uh, I like Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's by the way, that's Satan who condemns. He's called the accuser. Um, but it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I love that last phrase. Jesus is there in heaven making intercession for his people. Um, in other words, the courtroom of heaven, Jesus is standing there defending us as our attorney, uh, making intercession. That's the word intercession there. It's not that Jesus dropped down in prayer, having incense and all that. No, Jesus is defending us. It's almost like you picture the courtroom. There's the judge, God the Father, the judge of all judge, the judge of righteousness. And then you got the prosecuting attorney, Satan, who's accusing the brethren how often? Day and night, the Bible says. Um, and the sistren as well. He accuses all of us, day and night. But good news, we have an, uh, an attorney that makes Perry Mason look like a pipsqueak. You younger people are like, who's Perry Mason? Uh, <laughs> never mind. 
But Jesus is our defense attorney. And why is he so good? Because he's the son of the true and living God, the judge. But he's the beloved son who also has scars in his hands and feet and, and um, the nail prints as, as evidence that he not only is defending us, but he already paid our penalty. He paid our price. It's like the young 16-year-old who was taken before the court, shaken in his tennies because he was accused and charged with reckless driving. Very expensive ticket, by the way. And he gets into the courtroom and he's nervous and he's sweating and he's thinking, oh no, I gotta figure this out. And suddenly a smile comes across his face. He suddenly looks very relaxed. Why? Well, the judge walks in and it happens to be the young man's father. Ha, I got my dad for a judge. This is awesome. And there he's thinking, this is gonna be a piece of cake. And then the judge looked at the, the young boy and he says, son, are you guilty of the charge? Well, well yeah. And he said, then guilty, you will be fined $1,000 or spend a week in jail. And the son's like, but, 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 but dad, you're my, you're my dad. And the father says, guilty, case, case closed. And suddenly the son's freaking out. Well, then the judge stands up and takes off his robe, walks around off the bench and goes around to the bailiff and the recorder and gets out his checkbook. And then he writes a check for $1,000 and, and then pays the price The kid gets off, why? Well, it's the same thing that happened to you and me. You and I, we owed a debt that we could not pay. Forget $1,000, try eternal death in hell. But Jesus came down and lived among us, wrote the check. He, He paid the debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. And so he pays the debt. And it's not that God says case dismissed. He doesn't just dismiss the case. He says paid in full, And you and I are then justified, the Bible says, just as if we never sinned. I love that Jesus is our intercessor and it's a resurrected Jesus that can do that. First Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain and you are in your sin. You're still in your sin if Jesus didn't raise up from the grave. But because he did raise up from the grave, he stands on your behalf defending you, which is amazing. None of us deserve that but we were given that. Just a few verses after that, it says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. In other words, if Jesus didn't die and raise from the the grave, then we'd only have this life to be happy about. That's the problem of the atheist. If you're an atheist or an agnostic, how depressing is that? Seeing what's happening in the world and all the bad and evil and suffering and pain, if this is all you've got, that is depressing. But because Jesus rose from the grave, well, that brings us to the next and third and final point. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we have anticipation for the future. We have the hope of heaven. Because Jesus rose up from the grave, we too get to raise up, according to the Bible, to eternal life. And the Bible is clear on this. Um, This is an amazing truth. Jesus, his resurrection means that he actually did something for humanity to help us. He forgave us for our sins and gave us the hope of heaven. No other religious leader did anything for other people. That's why there's that little allegory or story that's, um, you know, the man that's traveling on a far journey and he ends up in, a, in quicksand and he's sinking ever so quickly. And, and suddenly as he's up to his waist and he's sinking quickly, suddenly Confucius walks up to him. And he says, Confucius say, it is evident that man should avoid such situations. And he walked away which if you know the way Confucius thinks, that's kind of the way they roll. 
Then he's sinking further, now up to his chest in, in the quicksand, and Muhammad walks up. Whoa, whoa. As he sees you sinking there in the, in the quicksand, and he says, alas, it is the will of Allah. Because that's the way of Allah, by the way. We, you know, the cardigan sweater pipe puffing guy will say, well, Allah and Jehovah, they're the same gods, uh, Jews and Christians, we're always worshiping the same. No, it's totally false. Um, but Muhammad's God of Allah that he got from the crescent moon there in uh, Mecca, the, the black stone, it's a whole nother, it has nothing to do with Jehovah. Um, but the Muslim God is capricious and you don't always know what mood he's gonna be in and good luck with that. You better hope if you have to face Allah someday, hopefully he'll be in a good enough mood that he won't mess you over. That's why Muhammad said, alas, it is the will of Allah, you're sinking in quicksand, the end. Buddha comes walking up and says, let this man's dilemma be an illustration for many. Because that's all Buddhism is. It's very positive and, and it's very, uh, people are nice that are Buddhists and stuff, but Buddha never did anything to help anyone. In fact, hurt a lot of people, as it turns out, if you look at his life. Well, the next one that comes along is Krishna, who believes in, and teaches reincarnation, that you're gonna die and come back as something else. And he walks up to the guy and now he's sunk to his nose going down. And, and Krishna looks at him and says, better luck next time. You see, none of these guys did anything. Well, then the story ends where Jesus comes walking by and the guy's just about ready to die, going under the ground, under the quicksand. And Jesus gets down and reaches out with a nail print in his hand and grabs the guy and pulls him up out of the miry clay, out of the pit and puts his feet on a solid rock. It's a great story. You say, well, Brett, that put, that put, you're making Jesus look really good in that story. Jesus literally is the only one who did something for humanity. He died on the cross for your sins, took that brutal penalty and rose from the grave, proving he was who he claimed to be. And thus we have the glorious anticipation of our future. This is as bad as it's gonna get for you and me right here on this planet. This is the worst of the worst right now. But as it turns out, we can look forward to it. What I'm looking forward to is first lesson is 14. If, um, oops, John 14 also. <laughs> John 14 is where Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. Let, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. Um, and then Thomas said, well, we don't know the way and how do we get there? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but through me. Jesus not only said, I will show you the way, he said, I am the way. Why? Because he died on the cross, rose from the grave, and, and then makes us go to heaven. And so the next thing I'm looking forward to, perhaps, if, if, the, if the Lord doesn't uh, you know, come soon or raptures church soon, I'll die and go to heaven. That's cool too. But wouldn't the rapture be great? First Thessalonians 4, 17, then we which are alive and remain, this will happen in the last days, the Bible says, shall be caught up. Greek word, harpazo, Latin word, rapture caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. When we get raptured, or if we die and go to heaven, we will ever be with the Lord from that day forward because he's resurrected, and we will be alive with him. Next time you're depressed, this is the last verse I'll give you, uh, go to 1 Peter chapter one. I, I find almost no greater encouragement than this verse right here, I love this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy. How abundant is Jesus's mercy? His mercy endures how long? Forever. According to his abundant mercy hath begotten us, which means 
adopted us as sons and daughters, again, to a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we have a living hope of future to be alive with him. It goes on verse four and says, we get to um, resurrect to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. If you're a believer in Jesus and have accepted Jesus who died and rose from the grave, you have heaven to look forward to. That's glorious. Can I just say, if you've not accepted Christ, would you please be open to the idea? If you've been rejecting it for some you know, reason, maybe you had a cardigan sweater wearing pipe puffing professor who convinced you to follow kind of a stupid line of logic. And I would say, look at the logic of the Bible of Jesus who died on the cross, rose from the grave, substantiates our faith. Um, I love that. It gives us the hope of heaven and eternity. And he stands in to ever intercede on our behalf. I love that. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads as we close out the service. And I'm just gonna uh, ask Christians to be in prayer. I know the hour is late again, but I have to ask you if, you, if you've not been saved, can I encourage you to accept Jesus as your personal savior? The way you do that is clear. Romans 10, verse nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus died on the cross and it says rose from the grave, that's part of the requirement. You have to accept that Jesus rose from the grave and believe that. It says there, then you will be saved. It's not you being good enough or smart enough or amazing, doing all kinds of good deeds. You're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight says, question is, have you received it? If you, if you want to, you can do it right now. I won't make you get up in front of anybody, but right where you're sitting, if you want to accept Christ, can I say a prayer of confession of faith with you right now? If that's you, with everybody else's heads bowed, if that's you, would you acknowledge that? Say, Brett, I want to accept a resurrected Jesus and believe and be saved. If that's you, would you just boldly right now just lift your hand up between you, me, and the Lord right now? Awesome, I just wanna see you guys way in the back there. Awesome, over here and here and here, I see you. Good, let me just kinda of over here, good. Back there, great, over here. Let me just kinda of look around. I wanna just acknowledge you guys and gals that are, anybody else over here? Cool, good. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession. If you're watching online with us, you can pray this with us and the Lord will hear your prayer. It comes from your heart, it says, uh, with confession with your mouth and belief in your heart, you will be saved. So let's do that. Let's confess and believe. I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray this out loud, backing up these several people. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins and rose up from the grave. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord, bless these people who've just accepted you. I pray your blessing, love. Lord, may they know your goodness, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.